0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab it and turn to James chapter 1. Uh, We're going to be looking at verse 17, though we will be looking at a uh, few other passages as well. So, just be prepared to, to turn a little bit this morning. One of the marks of a healthy church is expository preaching. Okay, and what we mean by expository preaching is really that the, the pastor stands up week in and week out, will, will preach a text, exactly what the text is saying, explain it, apply it, sit back down. And then next week he will get back up and do the exact same thing with the next passage and work his way through books. And we are extremely blessed to have a pastor that does exactly that. This ensures for us that the Word of God is front and center every week in our worship. We worship, we come together to hear the word of God. We need to hear from God every week. That's what we need far more than to be entertained, than to see our friends, to have solid fellowship. We need to hear from God if we're going to be more like Christ. This morning, however, instead of just camping out in one particular passage, we're actually going to see several passages in order to explain one central theme, one central idea. See, is my conviction that knowing God, who He is, what He's like, what He does, should be the top priority of every Christian. See, our greatest duty and our greatest Delight are wrapped up in knowing in an ever-increasing way the God who has redeemed us. That is our greatest duty as a Christian and also our greatest delight. You see, the way that we view God will determine what we do. Theology, whether, whether that's good theology or bad theology, is what drives us as believers. Whether you will succumb to the rising hostility of our culture and the views that it is forcing upon, the people will largely depend on your view of God. What you do with your time, what you do with your money, will largely depend on your view of God. The conversations that you are willing to have with your co-workers, with your friends, with your family members will largely depend upon your view of God. Theology is what drives our actions. Whether you often think about it or not. And so this morning, I want to take a hard look at God and consider one question. Does God Change. Does God change? And I'm going to argue this morning that the answer is no. He does not change. And I'll seek to argue this uh, first in, and really in two ways. We're gonna we're gonna first define explicitly what I mean, what this this doctrine that we're gonna hear about means when it says that God does not change. And then secondly, we're going to to seek to defend this. Doctrine, this view that God does not change from several passages of Scripture, though time will certainly not allow us to cover every passage in Scripture that speaks of the unchangeableness of God. And then lastly, we will see how this doctrine, how this theology, how this view of God directly applies to our lives, because it does directly apply to our life. So we'll, this morning, our task is to define. It is to defend, and it is to apply. And uh, in your bulletins, you actually have a completely blank space, so you have more than enough room to take notes as we go. The doctrine of the unchangeableness of God is known as the doctrine of immutability. All right, if something is mutable, then that means it can change. All right, if something cannot change, then we say that it is immutable, in the same way that we take the word possible, right, we say if, if, if something is not possible, we don't say not possible, right? We say what? We say it's impossible, right? So if something is immutable, that means it is unable to change. And the doctrine of immutability can be defined as, this is from an, uh, an old dead theologian, right? I love those guys. And he wrote, the, perfection, the doctrine of immutability, the immutability of God, is the perfection in God whereby he is exalted above all becoming and development, as well as above all diminution and remains the same eternally. Okay, so basically that means that God being perfect will never develop, will never become, will never change, whether for the better or for the worse, but will remain the same. Eternally, forever, God will remain the same. This is the definition that I will seek to to defend with Scripture. So hopefully by now you are in James chapter 1. And again, we're going to look at verse 17. This is the word of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for this time, and Lord, I pray that as we we look at your word, I pray that you would speak, you would press on our hearts the fact that you don't change, and in that we have life, and that we have hope, and that we have a secure place to put our feet. And I pray that you would uh, you would move through your word, that you would. Uh, give us a vision of you and may this understanding drive the way we go about our daily life. And I pray that you would uh, use, use me for your glory. Lord, we need you and we thank you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. So what we see in this passage is, is a contrast. right? So James is contrasting man with God, especially uh, in the previous set of verses. So he's contrasting man and God. In the area specifically of temptation, All right, We see this clearly in verses 12 through 15, and we see that man's source of temptation is his own sinfulness, right? It is his own desires. it is his own lust that leads him into sin. God is not the one that is tempting him. God, on the other hand, is not like. Man, he is not tempted in any way, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. Therefore, man cannot blame God for his temptation. This is James's point. You can see that in verse 13, which says, I'll, I'll read it out. It says, let no one say when he is tempted. Again, this is verse 13. This is directly before our passage. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Listen to this, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So so look at how James frames this for us. God is not the source of sin, verse 13, 12 through 15, but rather as he continues on in his argument in verse 17, he's not the source of sin, but rather he is the father of lights and the giver of all that is good. He's the father of lights and the giver of all that is good. And this reminds us of the creation narrative, right? Right? This reminds us of Genesis 1 where God really is the father of lights in that he spoke into being the sun, the moon, the stars, the the heavenly bodies that actually gives the earth light. So he is the father of light and he is the giver of all that is good. Do you remember the refrain that is repeated in Genesis 1? God saw everything that he had made and it was what? It was good. So He's the Father of lights. He's the giver of all good gifts. Now, the question that we can ask is, is, is certainly, we understand that. That's, that's Genesis 1. But, but how, do we know, how do we know that the God who, who spoke light into being and, and gives good gifts back then, that, that was so long ago, how do we know that He's the same God today? How do we know that He is the same God? God, how do we know that, that now, in James's time, right, writing to the early Christians, and in 2019, how do we know that he's not going to tempt us now? And James' argument, again from verse 17, is that it's because in him there is no variation or shadow due to change. So unlike the sun shining, God is not impeded by anyone or anything. A cloud can block a sunny day. We've been very familiar with that recently, right? If you go in the park, a tree will cast a shadow because a tree is blocking the sun's light. God is not like that. He is always the same, and he will not be changed by circumstances or environments. He will not be. And James so emphasizes this reality that he speaks in terms of small change, right? it's not a full blown makeover in God that he's he's speaking of but just a just a small variation right just a just a shadow due to change and yet and yet not even these small seemingly insignificant changes are possible with God he is unchanging he is immutable he does not change but James isn't the only book that we, that we see this, that we read of the unchanging God. Flip over to Malachi chapter 3. So it's the, the book directly before the New Testament. So find Matthew 1 and turn over a, a page or two to Malachi chapter 3. We, say, we see this exact same truth declared very clearly, right? Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, we read this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I am I'm so thankful for passages like this. I really am. Uh, there, are, there are so many passages in Scripture that are, that are unclear, that people can debate back and forth. Well, what's he saying here? Well, I think he's saying this. I'm, I think he's saying this. And, and we really have no clear indication. We can just kind of debate back and forth. Not so with this passage, right? Not so. God is very clear of what He is speaking of. He is the Lord, and He does not change. And for this, we should be very glad. We should be very glad, because if He did change, it would not end well for us. It would not end well for us. God says to Israel, I do not change and this is good for you. Otherwise, you would have been consumed long before now. It is not your righteousness or your faithfulness that has kept me faithful to you, but it is my own immutability. If I were to change even for a moment, you would have no hope, says God. Think about this for a moment. Was God ignorant of what he was getting when he chose Israel? Was he unaware of how things were going to turn out for them? Did he not know that they would be unfaithful to him when he chose them? God is omniscient, right? Which means that he knows all. He knew exactly how they would act in the wilderness. He knew exactly how they would act in the land. He knew exactly how their kings would In fact, we're going to see that in a few moments. And yet, he still chose to rescue and redeem them. This is love. And this is pure love that is unchanging. God says in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, listen to this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my Purpose, He knew exactly how Israel would live, and yet he still loved them. He knows exactly how we're going to act. He knew how many times that we would stumble and sin. He knew how many times that we would, we would fall back into the same pattern. He knew how many times we would fail to measure up. It doesn't catch him by surprise when we sin. In fact, he says, I I, I planned all this. I declared it from the beginning. Nothing you do is going to surprise me. And yet, church, he still loves us. His attitude towards his people does not change. Listen, there will never be a day when he decides that you've gone too far that you have outsend His grace. They will never come that day because He does not change. We can see this reality even from His name. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, we, we read God revealing, God disclosing His own divine name. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, we read this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. One idea that is prevalent throughout Scripture is the importance of one's name. And the the meaning behind it. We see this throughout uh, the Bible. Right? We see Abram's name going from exalted father. That's what Abram means. His name being changed from Abram to what? To Abraham, which means the father of many. So God, in changing his name from Abram to Abraham, it is giving him a promise, right? That I'm going to give you a son. And we see that in the meaning of the name. We see this uh, as, as Jesus changes Simon's name. Changes it to what? To, to Peter. Because he is going to be the rock of the early church. So some of these, some of these names uh, are, are very, really just kind of comical. They're very interesting, such as uh, Isaac. You guys remember the story of Isaac? His name literally means he laughs. Do you remember how he got that name? God promises to, to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son at this time next year. You're going to have a son. And Sarah, his wife, overhears and starts laughing, right? <laughs> that's, that's not possible, that's not going to happen. And God says, all right, you know what? Because you laughed at that, you're going to name your son, he laughs, so you can remember this. And so we have the name Isaac. And the name of God also carries with it a lot of meaning. What is, what is implied in the name, I am who I am? And there are three central ideas, if you want to jot them down three central ideas that we will speak about briefly that come with this name. The first idea that is present in God's name I am who I am is that he is self-existent. Okay, he depends on no one or nothing outside of himself to give him life. All right, I was dependent upon my parents to give me life. All right? God is not like that. He is self-existent. He has life in himself. Theologians call this his aseity, that God does not rely on anything external to give him life. Because if he did, right, the thing that gave him life would be God. Make sense? So God has life within himself. He did not, listen to this, because this is, this is prevalent, he did not create himself. He did not create himself, though this is often the way we, we think. We think of children kind of having a conversation with one another. They look around, they're walking through a park. Hey, hey, who, who made the trees? God made the trees. Well, well who made, who made the, the birds? Well, God made the birds, right? Good so far. Well, who made, who made my dog at home? God made your dog. Well, who made me? God made you. Well, who made God? Well, God made Himself. And and this this isn't true. right? For God to create Himself, that would mean that He would have to exist before He existed. Right? He had to exist before He was created. He had to be around in order to create Himself. And yet, He can't be around if He was yet to be created. Right? It doesn't make logical sense. So we don't say that God is self-created. We say that God is self-existing. That He has always been. That He has life in Himself. That He is being, capital B. And the next attribute of God, the next aspect of this name that goes hand in hand with this reality that He is self-existent, is that He is eternal. That He is eternal. If God has always existed, there's never been a time when He was not, then He is eternal. And this is what He means. In fact, this is Jesus speaking in Revelation 22:13 when He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? We're familiar with this. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. He has no beginning and He has no end. He has always been. All right, this is something that, that humans can never know, really in two different ways. We can be given eternal life, but we can't be given eternity retroactively. All right, so the moment you become a Christian and, and when either we go to Christ to be with Christ in death or Christ comes and, and redeems His church and brings them to Himself, we will have eternal life from that moment forward, right? Right? but we can't be given it retroactively. So God alone is eternal. He gives us everlasting life to those who will believe, to those who will repent. But that doesn't make us eternal. right? We'll have eternal life from there forward, but we will not have it forever in the past. God alone has that. Along with this, we can see uh, the, con- uh, the contrast between us and God in the sense that God is a a being a he, he is stable he is steady he does not change as we're going to see but but for us though we're called human beings right really the only thing about us that doesn't change is the fact that we're human right we we are not in this sense human beings we are always human becomings right we are always changing we are aging You are older today than you were yesterday. We are growing taller. We are growing stronger. We are getting weaker. We are learning. We are forgetting. We are not in a steady state. We are always becoming something in this life. But God is not like that. Because He is eternal. He has always been what he will always be, steady. That's why he's called a being with a capital B, right? And if God is self-existent, if He has life within himself, and if He is inter- eternal, excuse me, then He must be immutable. OK? We see that again from his name. For something that is eternal cannot change. because if it, it changed, it wouldn't be eternal. Right, if something changes, then there is a moment before it is what it is. So, for instance, if you were to paint your house from from blue to yellow, right, and and for for the rest of eternity, it is yellow. It is not unchanging. It is not eternally yellow. Why? Because there was a time before it wasn't yellow. There was blue before. Right. So there was a time before it wasn't yellow, it was blue before. And So for God, if he were to change in any way, no matter how small, no matter how big, he would not be eternal because there would be a time before he is what he is, right? So he cannot change for the better because that would imply that God was lacking in some way. If we were to say, well, well, God can improve over time, okay, well, all you're saying is there's a time before God was perfect. And I don't think we could comprehend, begin to think about God changing for the worse. For him to, to diminish, right? Because that would imply he was something less than perfect. He cannot learn anything, because that would imply that what? He was He was ignorant. He's not omniscient. God cannot change he cannot change and again in this we have hope now now some of you may be looking at me and say well hold on there hold on there what about what about passages i've, I've read the bible through a number of times what about the passages that, that say that god repented of something that he regretted something and that's a that's a fair question so turn with me to first samuel chapter 15 because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, in a matter of six verses, okay, it appears to us as if the Bible makes a statement and then immediately, again, six verses later, says something contradictory. Okay? We're going to see this here in a second. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 29 and 35. That's all we're going to concern ourselves with this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. It says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. It's pretty, pretty clear. And then we come to verse 35, again, 29 to 35, just a six, seven verses later, right? And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and listen to this, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God says, I am not a man that I should regret. And then almost immediately the Bible says he regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So so what is going on here? How do we... How do we grapple with these types of texts? And and to begin, what I want to ask is, why would men have regrets? Why do we have regrets in life? Would it not be because of a, a wrong decision that we made based upon insufficient information? All right, so we make a wrong choice. We regret a decision that we made because we didn't have all the information at the time. All right, so we regret taking the interstate home because we didn't know when we got on the interstate that three, four miles down the road that there was a tractor-trailer overturned and it's at a dead stop and the highway has become a parking lot, right? We regretted that decision. But we made that decision because we, we lacked the information. If we would have known that 81 was a parking lot, we would not have opted to go 81. We would have taken a back road around, right? And so the question is, does God lack knowledge? Was he ignorant of the decisions that Saul was going to make? And that's what led him to regretting. Have we not seen already from the book of Isaiah that he knew the end from the beginning? In fact, he declared the end from the beginning. Why then, if he had literally all the information about how things were going to turn out, why would he have regrets? And the answer to that is, he does not. He does not have regrets, because he is not a man who is finite. So, so why then does the text speak of him regretting making Saul king? You see, the Bible often speaks of God in, in anthropomorphic ways. So basically, what that means is it attributes human qualities to God so that we can understand, right? So we've read in passages of Scripture of the, the, the arm of God, the hand of God, the finger of God, right? And we understand what it's trying to convey, but, but God is spirit, right? So He doesn't have an arm, He doesn't have a hand, He doesn't have a finger, and yet the Bible uses that type of language. It speaks like that so that we can understand what is taking place, right? If you've grown up in the church, or if you've had kids grow up in the church within the last, goodness, 20, 30 years, then you've probably been taught the Bible at one time or another by a talking tomato and cucumber, right? Now, we all know, hopefully we all know, that tomatoes and cucumbers cannot actually talk, right? I've never had a uh, salad have a conversation with me. It's just never been done. And yet I learned a great deal from Veggie Tales, right, with Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. Those are anthropomorphic characters in that the the artist gave human qualities to something that was not human so that it could convey, in this case, teaching kids Bible stories, right? So in much the same way, the Bible speaks of God in anthropomorphic ways, attributing to him human qualities so that we can understand What's going on? So when the Bible speaks of God regretting, what the author is describing is not an inner dissatisfaction with a decision that God made, but rather that God is going to act in a different way towards Saul. Okay, so in that moment, he has rejected Saul as king. You guys remember this story in 1 Samuel? Saul has been rejected. He's going to continue to get lower and lower and lower. And David is going to be elevated as king. This is the will of God. Or this is the eternal plan of God. This is the way it was always going to take place that it had been the uh, plan that had been declared in eternity past, but it comes to fruition in time. Okay, so what I mean by that is we don't get to see the entire story at the beginning. So when Saul is picked to be king, we are unaware of the fact that God is going to reject him and elevate David. That David was going to be the one through whom the Messiah would come. God knew what was going to take place, but we didn't. And so the best way for man, for us to understand why God in time would would reject one king and elevate another, if we were to look at that, we would say, well, it's because... Because why? It's because he regretted making him king. But God has no regrets. This was his plan, this was his will, but yet it comes to fruition in time. So praise the Lord that the Bible would speak to us in a way that we would understand. He reveals to us his plan, his eternal, unchanging plan in time. So God does not change, he does not have regrets. But he does reveal his plan in time. Now, shifting to our final section. How does this reality, how does the immutability of God apply to our lives? What applications can we draw from knowing that our God does not change? The first is confidence in God's inerrant and unchanging word. If the God who wrote the Bible does not change then the Bible itself does not change. Okay, so God does not look at our culture in 2019 and, and have to adjust His Bible to fit our desires or to, to fit uh, to fit our uh, culture. He has spoken in the Bible and it will stand eternally. It will not change. Therefore, we can have confidence that... When the Bible speaks on an issue and culture disagrees with it, we can trust God who has spoken because it will not change. Culture will change. Culture has changed dramatically, especially recently. But God does not. And so we can stand by His word. Secondly, we can have confidence that the promises that we find in the Bible will be kept by God. So when he promises to give eternal life to those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ, then we know that this will happen because God will not go back on his word. He does not change and so we can trust his promises. We can have that assurance of our salvation. You see, the cross of Christ and the empty tomb will not change. They will stand forever as a beacon of hope and salvation for all who will repent and believe. God will not change and neither will His saving work in His Son. He will never look down despite our our sin, despite our disobedience. He will never look at you and regret saving you. The God who loved you from the start will love you till the end. Now this doesn't give us license to live however we want because next third application is for Christians the commands that Jesus gives to us are still commands that we are to follow because the commands of God does not change. So when Jesus says to be holy as I am holy we are to obey it today. When he tells parents to raise up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord we are to obey it. When he says to rejoice always we are to Obey, because it has not changed. When he, when he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, we are to obey because God has not changed. He has not. And finally, our, our urgency to share the gospel is to be greater because God does not change. In, in two ways. If the promises are God of God that are found in the death and resurrection are sure, and they are, and so is the judgment against sinners who are not in Christ. This is why we must be faithful to share the gospel. Because the God who is holy and gracious and loving does not change. And so his hatred against sin and his wrath that will be poured out against sin will not change. Hebrews 10 31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That will not change. And yet we are not without hope. Those who are under the wrath of the unchanging God have the glorious opportunity to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. That he has died in our place as our substitute and risen from the grave so that those who trust in Christ Can and will be saved. That our relationship with God. God will not change. But our relationship with Him can. Because of what Christ has done. So for those who repent. For those who believe. They can know. That what God has promised. And that He will give them eternal life. Will not fail. Why? Because God does not change. He does not change. And he will stand by his word. So church, we, we've seen who God is. And the realization is that what you do will be determined by your view of God. It really will. Do you feel the urgency of an unchanging God that hates sin and will pour his wrath out on sinners when you're having a conversation with your coworker? Do you feel that Or do you just assume that in the end God will change his mind? What I want you to, to hear this morning is that our God does not change. And in this, in this reality, we have hope. We have hope because the rock that we stand on will not give way. Because our God does not change. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the reality that you don't change. And I pray that in this, our our feet would be firm, trusting that you are who you say you are. Father, if there's anybody in here who has not come to Christ, I pray that today today would be the day that they would do so. And they would be able to know and love you as you are, as a God that does not change. We need you. We love you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.